Hi, this is Sean Perrin, and you're listening to another episode of the Clarinet.com podcast. Before we get started with today's podcast, I just want to quickly thank everyone who's been listening and subscribing and following on Facebook and everything else. We've made this from essentially an idea I had about eight weeks ago into something with well over a thousand followers across all forms of social media. The website's had over 3,000 hits in, in the first month alone, and um, we just reached a position I never thought we'd get to, number three of the new and noteworthy section on the iTunes music section of the podcast store, which is just really unbelievable. So thank you so much for subscribing and posting reviews and listening and sharing with your friends. It's been already a very interesting, interesting ride. So thanks for that. Um, Today, our guest on the show is Tom Pawalski, who was with the U.S. Army Field Band for 20 years. You've heard his playing at the intro and outro of every podcast so far. And I can't wait to share the conversation that we had. Without further ado, here's the interview with Tom Pawalski. Hi, Tom, and welcome to the Clarinet.com podcast. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Oh, thanks for having me. So you held a tenured position with the U.S. Army Field Band for 20 years. And on your website, you say that you performed in some of the most bizarre settings imaginable. As soon as I read that, I was wondering what that means. Would you share some stories from your time in the Army Band with us? Well, you're up there in Calgary, and I think there's probably some rodeo-type activity that goes on up there. There is, yeah, the, and, the world's biggest, I think. Well, one time we were doing a, uh, a concert somewhere in Oklahoma, and uh, the rodeo was in town right before the night before our concert. So they set the band out in the middle of the, of the, you know, the arena there on about five inches of sawdust. And we started the concert. It was felt okay. But by about the third tune, all of our chairs had like, you know, stuck into the ground by about six inches. And it looked like we were all sitting in kindergarten chairs or something like that. And it was really uncomfortable to do the concert. What other examples of something interesting did you experience? Well, we were over uh, for the 35th anniversary of the Normandy invasion. And uh, the field band had a 30-voice chorus and uh, that used to travel with us. And the way it ended up, they ended up for a week in Paris, you know, basically doing parties for generals and various things like that. And the band ended up down in Normandy where we were staying on in sleeping bags on the floor of a gymnasium and like getting up at, you know, oh, dark 30 to go play for, uh, you know, all the ceremonies and stuff like that uh, mm-hmm. that w- was going on. And it was funny, you know, it, the first part of it, we kind of felt like we had gotten the shaft on that deal. And uh, by about halfway through the first day, we realized just how incredibly lucky we were to uh, to be out there because it was really kind of interesting to see all the old guys that had come back and you know to look over the cliffs and just see some of the crazy stuff those guys did to you know to 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 secure that beach and then the highlight of it was uh, we were uh, marching in uh, the parade uh, I guess the city of Saint Maraglise was one of the first ones that was liberated by the Allies. And we were there. The British band was there. Uh, most of you know, most of the band, the Belgian band, was there. And and you know, the British were playing Colonel Bogey March. The uh, 
the French were playing the French national defilet. Uh, the Belgians were doing the Belgian paratrooper march. And for some reason, we were doing uh, a Black Horse Troop, which is a great Sousa march, but it isn't the Sousa march. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we sort of went to our... Uh, our drum major and said, look, we have to, we have to do stars and stripes forever. And, you know, you know, he was kind of reluctant to ask the commander who was there. And the commander said, look, you know, you're, when you're on the street, you're in charge. So he said, okay, we're going to do stars and stripes forever. So we, in the parade, we, we get out there, we turn onto the main street and there was nothing but American flags out all the windows. We, we were playing Stars and Stripes Forever. We got to the reviewing stand about the time we were getting kicking into the trio. Now, the field band is was the Army's premier concert band. We only ever marched like one parade and uh, inaugural parades. That was it. So marching and, was a rather reduced element of the... Yeah, that was not what we were, we were about. And being that we always did Stars and Stripes in a concert situation, we always had this big retard right before we got to the, the last strain. And we're out there on the field, and we're marching, and we actually marched a retard. <laughs> it's like the, the whole band just slowed down, and right on the, where, the, where the conductor would have given us the cue to, to go back into tempo, we just stepped out. And it's like when we got done the parade, the, the Brits were like, going, how could you guys do that? It must have taken lots of rehearsal for you to master that move on the, on the parade field. And it was like we couldn't play it any other way. It's the only way. Well, you know what I should have asked first um, was we have a lot of listeners, obviously, from Canada. And then people can listen from anywhere in the world. Could you describe exactly what the U.S. Army Field Band does and what its purpose serves? Well, the Army Field Band is the premier touring band of the U.S. Army. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're located outside of Washington, D.C., and very rarely did we have anything to do with any of the ceremonial stuff that went in Washington. We basically spent 120 days touring the United States, and we were in Canada a few times and various places all over the world. So you played there for for 20 years. Um when you're in that band, are you also, you must be a member of the military. Yes. Yeah. Everybody yeah. in the army field band has to go through basic training. And, uh, but once you're in the band, you're pretty much, you know, you're, you're, that's what you do. You're, yeah. you know, PT test, you have to pass every year and, uh, play music. And so PT is physical training. Yep. You used another term a second ago. I was trying to figure out what that meant. Um, Oh, dark 30. What, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> oh dark oh dark 30 yeah it's it means when you get up and the sun isn't even close to being up yet oh i see <laughs> that's funny <laughs> so you had a long career with them um but you say that teaching is an important aspect of your career um i think that's great to see that you still feel that way or that you do feel that way was there a teaching element when you were in the field band or or more after well we used to do uh you know, various master classes, we'd go into high schools and that's still a big element of what they do when they're out on tour is, you know, they'll go in and, you know, help a band director out with, with music and, you know, one of the clarinet players will go in there and help people, you know, learn to play some of the parts that, you know, band directors are always very optimistic on what they program. And sometimes clarinet parts are really hard. I've always found that actually, especially with um, wind transcriptions of orchestral pieces, the the clarinet section sort of turns into the violins. Oh yeah, 
That's fun. I, it's, I've often thought that I have way too much ADD to sit in an orchestra and count rests. I think in, in 20 years in the Army field band, if I had eight bars rest, that was the max I've ever, I ever seen. Unless we were doing uh, fanfare for the common man and then you just sat there for the whole tune. But uh, Yeah, wind band is so different <laughs> that way. It sounds like you wouldn't have made a very good percussionist. <laughs> no. <laughs> Waiting so much. Um, so you, you teach now? You have a studio or... Yeah, I teach at one of the uh, music stores right up the street from me, actually. Oh, okay. Um, so what's the most important piece of advice that you would give each of your students? Uh, to really only practice when you're really focused on what you're doing. Uh, I, I'm constantly sort of battling band directors that are making them take home sheets that said you practiced a half hour or you practiced an hour. Now, why I think you know, practicing that long could be good if you're focused for that length of time. I, I, I think that my kids get a lot more out of 10 minutes of real focused practice than they do out of a half hour of just making noise. So their mom writes down that they were doing it for a half hour. Yeah, totally. Along those same lines, then, I guess you could say you're more of a goal-oriented practice. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I think, I think that uh, practicing... It should be very much like cooking. You know, you should, you know, when you're, when you're going to cook a meal, if you have a recipe and if it's a well-written recipe, you should be relatively certain that when you do everything in the recipe, you're going to get something that resembles the picture in the book. Yeah. And uh, that was one of the things I was lucky enough to study with Leon Rushinoff. And one of the, one of the times, uh, I was stationed in an army band up in New York city when I first got into the army. And, uh, I think that was, I, th- I think the excerpt was Le Coque d'Or. I was, I was trying to play it and I, I was practicing, you know, I probably practiced about 40 hours that week on that thing. And I kind of walked into my lesson and it didn't work, you know, and Leon was such a marvelous teacher that he kind of looked at me and said, you know, uh, you know, he asked me how much I'd practiced and I told him and he said, he just shook his head and said, that's way too much. And he proceeded to write out some rhythms and stuff like that. It was almost like a doctor writing a prescription. He says, now I only want you to play for 15 minutes outside of band rehearsal. And when you're playing these 15 minutes, I only want you to do exactly this. And he handed me the paper and you know, I, I have to admit, one of my strong points in studying clarinet is if my teacher tells me to do something, I will always do it exactly what they what they told me to do. So I did that. I mean, it was hard. I mean, I didn't know what to do with the rest of my day when I wasn't practicing. You know, it's, you know, so I did what he said for 15 minutes. The next lesson, I walked in there and nailed that thing like, unlike I've ever nailed something before. And that was probably... The most I've ever learned in a lesson was how to use my time. And that was a skill that served me incredibly well for the rest of my army career because, you know, <laughs> they're always throwing something in front of you that uh, you can't play right off the bat. Yeah. And if you take your cooking analogy again, I mean, you, you want to find the quickest way to cut up the onion. You don't want to you right. know, do it in four hours and then everything else is burned. <laughs> Well, you know, there's a theory behind practicing, and it's like, you know, I'm convinced that especially uh, – I, t- I tend to teach a lot of middle school and high school kids. Mm-hmm. But when, I'm convinced that when people are in college studying it, you know, you're practicing five and six hours partially to show 
everybody else that has a clarinet that you're more into it than they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's sort of a, a badge of honor. Well, I, I practice four hours. Well, I practice five. You know. <laughs> well, the same thing happens with reeds. I mean, people are thinking that's a mark of accomplishment to get up to a five reed or whatever they aim for. Yeah, I can remember when I was a kid, we were all playing on fives. I don't know anybody that plays on a five nowadays. <laughs> no, I don't think anyone does. Um, we're going to divert from the questions just for a moment, if that's okay. Um, okay. Your teacher's name, Rushinoff, is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, Leon Rushinoff. Uh, yeah. Um, he had a series of books that we were discussing the other day online. Um, uh-huh. th- they're very good, and they're, they've been something that's gone out of print, and I know they're very sought after. Um, do you know why they've gone out of print? I have no idea. Uh, they were probably some of the the best best books I've ever seen on on clarinet playing. And it's funny as I read, look over my copies, I can remember lessons where he basically, uh, it almost in retrospect looked like he was reading from a you know from the script because the the book reads exactly like what his lessons were. It was you know. Hold it like this. Taste this. Push that. Feel this. It was really a, a get to know what you're doing kind of thing. A, a very physical approach to it, rather than sort of mentally, you know, trying to figure it out. Well, it's funny because I actually I, I was going to watch it this evening, but I found a bunch of his master classes on YouTube, which would be maybe, oh cool, yeah, worth checking out. Um, but uh, yeah, it's those books, you can find them online, but man, they are very expensive. So I wonder what it would take to get them back in print. But It seemed I kind of, uh, I was looking into that. It was, it was something with the way the copyright, and, and nobody in his family wanted to do something to get it done. And I think it was at the point where they were only going to print them up if somebody like invested a bunch of money to print them up, the, the printing cost up front or something like that, because... Mm. I, I don't know how many they sold the first time, but we should start a Kickstarter campaign. Speaking of teaching resources, um, you yourself have been quite dedicated with producing some. You want to talk about those a little bit? Sure. When I was up stationed up in New York, uh, it was really kind of an interesting thing. I, I got into playing klezmer music kind of in a really weird way. Uh, when we were up in the army, we would get free tickets to see different things at the USO in Times Square. And uh, I would go in on Thursday nights for my lessons with Rushinoff. And uh, one night I was just happened to be walking around Lincoln Center. And uh, what was really interesting is I, the first time I was ever at Lincoln Center and there were nothing but Hasidic Jews going into Lincoln Center, which, trust me, is not something you see. Uh, it, it almost was like a scene out of a Mel Brooks movie. Mm-hmm. And so... I had never seen this before. I walked up to a, a, a gentleman who was, you know, he was wearing the black coat and had the black hat on. And, and I said, you know, sir, could you tell me what's going on tonight? And he goes, he looks at me and he says, the world's greatest clarinetist is giving a concert tonight. And I was 18 at the time. And I, without missing a beat, I looked at him and said, I studied with Leon Rushinoff at the Manhattan School of Music. If the world's greatest clarinetist was giving a concert tonight, I'm sure he would have told me about it. <laughs> and this guy sort of looked at me, scratched his head, reached in his pocket and handed me a ticket and said, you know, son, you need this more than I do. Oh, wow. And uh, I walked in there and I was like in the fifth row and 
I ended up sitting through two and a half hours of watching Giora Fiedman play the clarinet. Did you ever hear from this man with the ticket again? Or No, I, I, I never got his name. I didn't see it. It, it was like he gave me his ticket. So <laughs> he wasn't even in there. Wow, what a uh, crazy experience. Yeah, and it was like, it was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. I had never seen anybody with a clarinet sort of just enthrall an audience like he was doing. And I've never heard somebody play the thing that incredibly musical before. So uh, I would assume that your studies with uh, at the Manhattan School then were mostly classical at that point. Oh, yeah. What did mm-hmm. Rushenoff say the next week when you showed up and announced you wanted to play klezmer music? Well, I didn't really announce that I was going to play klezmer music in there. What I ended up doing was I walked across the street to a to a Sam Goody, which was a record store for our youngins here. You used to have to actually go someplace and buy records and tapes. I got these two Israeli-manufactured cassette tapes. Uh, one was called Jewish Soul Music, and the other was called The Gunam of My People. And I just proceeded to get I got a cassette player, and I just managed to transcribe everything off of those two tapes. And I just started playing the stuff. So you have two books then about Klezmer. There's one you released a while back, and there's a new... I don't know if yeah, it's a uh, book, but it's what you're working on now. My first one was a clarinetist guide to klezmer, where I, I took some two of the CDs that were really prominently outright, you know, at the time, with by two of the, uh, just the two major klezmer influences from the 1920s and 30s, uh, Naftal Brandvine and Dave Terrace, and I transcribed ten of each of their tunes, put it in the book, and basically just described the process of how I learned how to play klezmer music and just about how everybody else I knew learned how to do it, which was, you know, getting these CDs, listening to them, uh, trying to play along with them, you know, looking at a transcription as sort of a guide to figure out what they were actually doing till you kind of got familiar with it. And, you know, and I, I basically just described the process of, uh, of, you know, how, how the people who learned this went about doing it. So for those who don't know, with klezmer music, is that more of an improvisational process or an ornamentation? Or can you talk about that a bit? Well, yeah. Klezmer music is, is the, the instrumental dance music of, uh, of the Hasidic Jews from you know, Eastern Europe from the you know, late 1800s up through the early 1900s. Uh, it's, it's predominantly instrumentalized versions of like vocal tunes and, and things like that. And, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty much an ornamentation kind of stuff. It's very similar to Baroque music and, and really sort of the old, the, the real old new Orleans style jazz. You sort of always heard the melody, but you could embellish it. Uh, so it, it does pretty well. Like there was a few years ago, it's like Perlman kind of got into it and he had a, a CD out called uh, From the Fiddler's House. And he had just gotten started playing with that stuff. And, you know, he was basically just playing the melodies. You know, I mean, you know, when Itzhak Perlman plays a melody, it's pretty well played, and he knows how to play that stuff. So he was doing really, really nicely just playing the melody. A year and a half later, when he came out with the live album of it, he was all over the place. He was ornamenting it beautifully and, you know, sounded like a real mensch. So with klezmer, then it's it's very acceptable to embellish as you see fit, but you do stick to the paper. 
Yeah, it's uh, I was I was talking to Andy Statman, who is one of the uh, was Dave Terrace's protege, and he says it's you know it's it's like making soup. You know, you can you just don't want to put too much salt in it. You know, you you want to make sure you got the right balance of melody versus ornamentation, and you want to be able to hear. You know, if you're doing a very long song and you're and you're making it more and more ornate as you go by, you know, as you play it, you want to be able to still hear the melody. Yeah, and I guess soup without any salt is not exactly that appetizing. So you got to have that mix. Mm-hmm. It's so funny to hear the cooking references because uh, Michael Norsworthy was on last week and he was actually talking about, I think, a rehearsal as some sort of cooking experience as well. So, <laughs> um, so your new book, um, I think you said you took a little bit of a different uh, direction with it this time because one of the complaints from people was they had to read the last one. <laughs> so this one is more musically based this time with examples. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, what this one I decided to do was basically uh, I took a bunch of the accompaniments and uh, the band parts, the accordions, the drums, the bass, and stuff like that, and I sequenced them in into my computer and fixed it up so that for any particular tune, I would have myself playing it with the band in a, in a pretty basic way where I'd play it through one time where I was just basically playing the melody and then the second and third times where I would ornament things just a little bit. And uh, then I had a second version of it where it was without me playing so you could sit there and look at the uh, piece of music and just play along with it. And then since some of these things were uh, really pretty technical, I put another version where I would actually cut the tempo in half so you could actually practice it a little bit just to get to the point where you could play the melody. So that's something. I th- so you sent me a preliminary version of this. Um, I'm excited to actually give it a try. Is this something you're planning on releasing in physical form or digitally? Or Well, I'm gonna re- I think I'm going to re- uh, release it digitally because of the way I kind of foresee people using it. The, the, the play-along tracks, I've actually gone in and have done gigs with it where I just stood there and played with my the accompaniment that I had. On, I, and I put it on my iPad and ran it out to a speaker and played along with it. And, uh, you know, they're like those kind of gigs where, you, you know, you get a call from the, the senior lunch at the synagogue and they'd love to have you come out and play. And, you know, they don't have a lot of money to, to pay for a band. So I'd walk out there and just do the thing by myself and they love it. So... You know, and I also have on it PDFs of uh, of the music in C, B flat, and E flat. So you know, you can print out what you need. You know, if you're if you're going to work with a pianist, you can print out a C sheet for the pianist, and uh, you know, you can print out a B flat sheet if you need to have the B flat sheet. So we sort of deviated a bit from your time with Russianoff and got through a couple other questions in the process, which, which is okay. Um, but before we move on from your time as a student, who else did you study with? And is there anything else you'd like to share? Well, I was lucky enough that I started studying with a man that I'm still in contact with today. He lives out in Vegas, a guy named Alan Lawson, who, uh, who inadvertently, when we started, ended up teaching me stuff that like ended up paying out years of dividends, uh, when I got into the army, uh, I was kind of one of those people who I picked up the clarinet and was sort of pretty good at playing it by ear. And what I would do in my lessons with him 
is I would get him to play the etudes that I was supposed to play for me, you know, that I was supposed to play the next week, and I'd kind of listen to them, and I'd sort of memorize them. And uh, after about a couple of weeks of this, he figured out that that's what I was doing, that I wasn't really reading the music, and he started messing around with them and just to see whether I was going to play what was on the page or what he played. And uh, once he found out that I was sort of like sort of BSing my way through reading the etude, uh, he made me start actually trying to transcribe music. And I, I remember him making me get Pete Fountain plays the blues. And just like, I had to come into a lesson with eight bars of something off the Pete Fountain album. And I had to be able to read the stuff that I was supposed to read. And, uh, that sort of started my longtime affinity with, uh, with, uh, transcribing stuff. Uh, Al was also a student of Iggy Genusis. And then when I stopped studying with Al, I went and I was studying with Chris Wolf, who was the assistant principal E-flat player in the Baltimore Symphony, who was also a Genusis student. And then probably my main teacher through high school and, you know, my first years of college was Iggy Genusa. And uh, so I always sort of had that sort of same sort of sensibility about how you play a clarinet from, from those guys. So the transcription element, did he have you, because um, I think a lot of students don't experience that nowadays, they, they kind of get a piece of band music or something, and they they often wait to be told how it sounds before they can even play it, um, which is always something I've found kind of odd. But when you transcribe something, you're sort of working backwards, you don't even have the, the sheet music. Do you transcribe with clarinet in hand or just by ear or at the piano or what's your process? Oh, I, I always sit down and do it with the clarinet in hand just because for some reason, uh, and, and it's, it's funny, I sit there and do this exercise with most of my students. If I ask them to sing a scale, they can't do it. But if, they, if I have them finger the clarinet along with it, they can sing it. So there's a lot of tactileness in your ear from... Uh, from just touching a clarinet and playing it for a long time. And since I was doing a lot of clarinet music, it really helps to sit down there and, uh, uh, yeah, I think have the clarinet in your hand to get you started. Yeah, totally. So we have to talk about your SoundCloud page because it's very popular. I think you post something every day. Is that, yeah. is that true? Yeah, pretty much. I try to. So how is your, um, how do you decide what to record? I mean, it's, it's so prolific. Um, and I don't think you've really repeated the same thing more than, I mean, there might be a different version, but every day seems something fresh. Well, I, I really started getting into the idea of trying to record clarinet and, and learn different kinds of music. Uh, uh, years ago, I matter of fact, it might've been up at the, uh, clarinet convention when it was in Vancouver. I heard the guys from Choro music in the, uh, in the room where the vendors are. Was that the first time you heard them? I think so. It it must have been. Uh, I can't think of where else they they would have been. Uh, And they were playing, and I love that kind of music. And it's very similar to klezmer music in that it's an ornamented style. I mean, when you listen to the guys that play that, it's... uh, they're pretty much playing the melody. They embellish it every once in a while. They might take eight bars of it and just improvise something new over it. But, you know, there's so many notes written down in the melody of those things. It's kind of hard to come up with stuff that's not already there. And, uh, Mm -hmm. and I just got into that. So I bought a bunch of books and I just started putting the things on and, 
you know, every once in a while I'd flip the page and I'd look at the next one and it was like, here's the clarinet, you're, you're in B major and you got to play all this fast stuff. And, and I'm sitting there thinking to myself going, oh man, I can, I'm in logic. I can lower it a half step and play it a different key or I could pick up the A clarinet or do something. I go, no, I'm going to nail it. There's a the guy playing clarinet on this track. He's playing it in that key. So dang it, I'm going to play it like that. So is that, um, when you're in Vancouver, I remember actually you played a Klezmer show. Um, well, you played a few concerts, but one of them was an after hours kind of Klezmer show at a bar. And I remember thinking how refreshing that kind of was to hear. Um, was that with a similar type of band or was that different? Oh, that was with my, uh, my, uh, group, the, the Atone, the Atonement. Uh, mm-hmm. we were, we were up there doing that. And, uh, as, uh, my guitarist, Bob and my, my keyboard player, Julius, who, uh, I met, I mean, I met Julius in a, uh, a class at Peabody Conservatory. Uh, it was like a summer program for, for youth. And we were both like 13 at that point. And, uh, I can remember I had, we had to take a piano lab class. You know, that's when those, those electric pianos with the headphones were just starting to, to be the piano kind of teaching thing in college. And, uh, I'm sitting there trying to find middle C and he was playing Elton John tunes. And, uh, <laughs> That's hilarious. It, after we, after that class was over, we walked into a room and we just started playing and, you know, we've been playing, yeah, I'm 56. So we were 13 when I have, so we've been playing for a lot of years together. That's crazy. So, um, back to the SoundCloud, we, a lot of people, I think, are wondering, and this was actually a listener question, and it's, of course, a question I also have, but you get such a great clarinet sound, um, and on all of your recordings, actually, it sounds really fantastic. Are you able to share your recipe for how that works or what your setup is there at the computer? Or Yeah, uh, it's, it's really funny. If I took a picture of this thing, it's like I'm in an unfinished basement. I mean, I'm looking at bare rafters at the ceiling and a, uh, and a, uh, you know, you know, the, the pipes for the, for the, uh, heating and air conditioning. And so I'm not really at any kind of sonic space. That's really any, really any good. Uh, what I do is, uh, I've always been a fan of something called ribbon mics. Mm. Uh, and I remember years ago when I was a kid, uh, and I was, I, I grew up playing in the family polka band and, uh, I used to absolutely despise the clarinet sound that the guys that did that got, they would, they would take a microphone, they would shove it down the bell of their clarinet and, oh, it was just, it was just like the most paint peeling kind of clarinet sound you know here i am you know i was i was enrolled at the peabody prep and you know i was studying classical music and here i am with this polka band and i'm trying to figure out how to get my clarinet to sound as good as it was sounding where i was standing and uh, a friend of mine kind of turned me on to this uh the first ribbon mic I ever had, which is if those who are old enough to remember the Johnny Carson show when it was on, it was exactly the same mic he had on his desk. It was a Shure SM 53 ribbon mic. So I'm familiar with dynamics and condenser mics. What makes a ribbon different? I've heard of them. I've never really. It, a ribbon is really old. It was really pretty much one of the first kinds of microphones that ever, they ever used in radio. A matter of fact, any of the guys you hear, uh, 
you know, like the old radio broadcast and you see pictures of him with that old big thing. It looks like a quart of milk on a, on a stand. You know, that was a ribbon mic. And what a ribbon mic is, is a very thin aluminum ribbon and it's surrounded by magnets. And basically the sound is derived from the variance in the electricity between how that ribbon vibrates. Hmm. And for some reason, no matter what microphone I use, if it's a ribbon microphone, it always seems to sound really good on the clarinet and the condenser ones, which are like your most mics that most people see, you know, the, the Neumanns and all those things. I always have to like mess with the EQ to get them and mess with the placement to get it exactly like, like I want it. a ribbon mic. I just sit it in the same room and it seems to work. So you place it rather far away then to capture the sound as it grows. You don't put it right next to the. No, I tell you what, I, I can I can reach out and touch the microphone that I record. It just sits on my desk next to the music stand. It's really low tech in my placement and stuff like this here. So it's a few feet away then, for sure. No, that's uh, when I'm sitting here looking at my music stand. I can I can touch my music stand with my one hand straight in front of me, and with my left hand I can touch the microphone. It's probably at eleven o'clock. So it's it's right close. So it's it it works and a, and it's and what I'm using is a is a a ribbon Shure 330 which is a figure eight pattern and I go into a uh, a really good mic preamp by uh, AEA which is sort of a dedicated ribbon mic pre and then I go straight into uh, into Logic off of that. So for those who don't know, a figure eight pattern picks up signal from the front of the mic and behind the mic. So you're getting some room sound that way. (laughs) Yeah. Really cool. So have you ever experimented with those? um, I can't remember the brand name right now. AMT, I believe. They have a two mic system that attaches to the... You have one of those too? I use that. As a matter of fact, there were some things I actually recorded with the AMT. What that's more meant for live situations. Correct? Yeah, I actually, I actually did, I actually recorded a few things on my SoundCloud thing where I was just, just to see how it sounded, and it was really good. So it has, um, for those who don't know what we're talking about, there's a mic that clips on the bell, and there's another one just above, I believe it's around the middle joint, or is it above the right hand notes? Uh, it's above the, it's kind of right above the left hand, and the way mine is set, the uh, the bottom microphone is like with the low, between the low E and F hole. Oh, so it comes up a little over the bell. Yeah. Oh, okay. So what's the key noise like with that one? It seems to me like it would be an issue. Well, no, the, uh, the microphones that are in it are, are isolated in a, uh, in, in, in like some kind of rubber band thing. So there's really no direct connection. Oh, okay. Yeah. There's not a lot of, I, I don't perceive any key noise. I mean, okay. There isn't any key noise transmitted through the body. If you have a clicky key and it's making noise and you can hear it, the mic will pick it up. Okay, so you, you hear the, the audible sounds, but it's not like the thumping right. on the instrument is going to shake the mics. And I'm pretty anal about keeping my clarinets to the point where I don't hear key noise. I'm, I oil them a lot and, you know, I keep yeah, the mechanism I was, lubricated. And... <laughs> I was going to say, I guess a lot of key noise should just be a trip to the store to get that oiled. Um, have you ever experimented with pickups for clarinet? Uh, no, I know a lot of guys, uh, around here, there's a couple of guys that do stuff in Greek bands. And, uh, I think it's a, the company's called Pulaf or something that does a, uh, a microphone that kind of clips into the barrel. 
And a couple guys I've heard get a really cool sound out of it. It's not necessarily something that I'd like to get, but I really kind of, I think it's interesting sounding. And I've toyed with the idea of getting one to run it into a device that would change the pitch to MIDI control. Oh, yeah, that would be interesting. I've thought about the same thing for potentially experimenting with looper pedals and things like that, but you can get ones with microphone inputs anyways, so. Uh, yeah, uh, I think it's the big boss pedal actually has an XLR with phantom power. Yeah, I've got that one. It's an RC300. Yep. Have you ever tried anything like that? I had one of those loopers, and I wasn't really using it just because uh, – my guitarist was using one a lot on the gigs. It was just getting to the point where it's just hard to kind of, you know, kind of keep everything locked in and, and doing loopers and stuff like that. But I've seen some people do some really interesting, uh, uh, Mike Lowenstern's done some stuff with loopers. That's just amazing. Definitely. Yeah. I'm hoping to talk to him actually. I remember seeing him play at, uh, Vancouver in 2008 again and man was that cool I don't know what he was using exactly but really cool setup I really enjoy the fact that he's like you know he I I like it when people sort of want to dance dance with the technology you know instead of because I do know a bunch of players who will just not have anything to do with it and uh you know I mean it's kind of fine you know if you have a if you have a position in the symphony orchestra and you just got to go in there and and play real parts for people, but you know anybody else that's out there trying to you know build an audience and put together a, an interesting show, you know you, you know, nothing can be off the table. Well, and using the technology for the instrument, there's nothing wrong with that. I wish it was easier actually to find a way to get people into that sort of thing. Well, we started using a looper a lot uh, with my guitar player. So we'll, we'll play a tune, and usually the first time through a tune, I'm playing the melody or, or the head or whatever we're doing, and he's just comping chords. So then immediately on the second time through, if he wants to, he can basically sit there and solo over his, the same guitar part that he was playing behind me. Yeah, which is so cool. And uh, it, it really is. And, you know, and then we can do stuff where he's playing harmony to me, but we still have the rhythm thing going behind us. And I found that it's personally much more real than going out and playing with uh, canned tracks. Oh, definitely. You know, I just, we just, neither one of us have a lot of fun with tracks. I mean, I record to them all the time, but I don't want to go out and play with them. No, yeah. And the people are amazed by that kind of technology and, and um, to go back and play over something like that gives it a whole new life, which is almost, it's almost like a studio recording happening live. Yeah. It's fun. You know, it's the kind of thing that keeps it different and new and interesting for the performers. And, you know, and the audiences seem to catch on and dig it. Yeah. If you just throw on a CD, it doesn't have that same sort of vibe, mm -hmm. even if it's you playing. Um, have you ever done any, I know I've heard some on your SoundCloud page, some layered clarinet stuff. How are you doing that? Is it sort of a just in logic you play each part separately, or is that with a looper? Or? No, I've all anytime I'm doing anything on SoundCloud, I'm basically playing, playing along. You know, I I lay one track and then I go back and re-record another track. Mm. So for those who don't know, the SoundCloud page is SoundCloud.com/slash Klezmer Tom. 
is there another SoundCloud page for your your band? No, it's pretty much. I put all the stuff I do up on that same the same page. Well, definitely check it out. It's it's very very cool, and the daily updates I've definitely enjoyed those. And I should have mentioned this earlier, but Tom's playing is featured at the beginning and end of the podcast. We're so happy that he um, was able to provide us with that. And it, the sound is just fantastic. I think it's well, an amazing you. recording and, and the, the tone and everything. Is that with your um, Buffet Divine? Well, I've been playing a lot of the different uh, Buffet clarinets over the last year. Uh, I have a, uh, a Divine, uh, uh, a set of Toscas, and a festival that I got. Oh, I have a, yeah, I have a festival too. I, I quite like it. I've been very curious about that Divine, though. You know, it's 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 funny. I really wish, and, and this is the one thing: like nobody that manufactures anything ever wants to tell you really about what's under the hood of that thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I really like the Tosca. That thing, you know, that, that I have a set of those. The A clarinet is beautiful. The the B flat clarinet, I can put a lot of power into it. It it holds its sound, but when I pick up the Davine, it's. Uh, it almost reminds me of some of the old big bore things that I've played that were made in the 30s and 40s. It just sort of has that sort of big bore clarinet mellowness to it. Do you have an A and a B flat in that one? No, that one I don't have a, an A for. So I just, did play a nice one up at the buffet showroom this summer. <laughs> were they just released this past year? No, I think they've been out for uh, maybe two or, two or three years. You don't see very many of them in this country because I guess they're an RC bore, mm-hmm. and that's not the, you know, that those those tend not to be that big in the United States. Yeah, I haven't seen one one yet. Um, so, what other gear are you into? What's the kind of stuff you like to use? What are your thoughts on gear? Well, I've been. I, over the years, I've used the mouthpieces that were made by, by Jim Cantor. I really love his work. Lately, I've been playing on uh, some of the Rico Reserve things that I was asked to try. And uh, today, I, record, I re-recorded something, uh, that Victor's Tale from the, the Terminal. And I was, I was putting that uh, Reserve, Zero, uh, Reserve Zero mouthpiece on my Devine and played it because I just wanted to see what it sounded like recorded. And uh, I've been liking that. Uh, what about ligatures and stuff like that? I've been using uh, one of the Silverstein ligatures. I've, I've put those on all my instruments. And, you know... Stuff like ligatures and things, people will always argue about whether it sounds better or whether it doesn't sound better, you know. Or, But what I do like about the Silverstein ligatures, and this is something that I don't even think is, is not quite even, you know, debatable in my, in my mind, is I tend to play in a lot of situations where I might not really be able to hear what I'm playing, you know, a, a loud klezmer band at a wedding, you know, I'm lucky to be able to... to to get what I'm doing sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. and what I like about the Silverstein ligatures is I feel the mouthpiece vibrating so much more in my mouth that that's enough to give me, uh, you know, much better playing feedback. It's interesting. Last week, um, I was interviewing Ryan Pereira of, I guess two weeks ago of a 3d printing company. He's making barrels and bells. And one of uh-huh. the one of the things I found about those, which was so interesting to me, is that the the projection and the um, just the sound volume really seemed to increase, but also the the resonance of the whole instrument. I really could feel it. 
mm-hmm. a lot more, which was interesting. Um, when you talk about the mouthpiece, are you using a mouthpiece patch on top, or you want to feel it more? Well, I've always played the clarinet double lip. I've always used a double lip embouchure. And but that being said, I actually use a rubber patch on the top just because sometimes, if I if I'm sweating and you know, sweat goes down in there, that thing will start slipping around in my mouth. And with a, I've toyed with the idea of taking the things that you put in the bottom of a shower and putting it on top of my mouthpiece so it wouldn't <laughs> slip around. So do you want to talk about double lip a little bit? Uh, I think Michael last week also uses double lip. It, it seems it's becoming much more common. Wait, that's, that's really strange. Uh, when, when I think, when I was in the army, we had, oh, 12 B-flat clarinet players. I think there was only one other person that played double lip. Uh, every one of my teachers that I grew up studying with played double lip. Uh, I've never played the clarinet any other way. And uh, though lately, what I've been, what I've determined, I mean, there's a lot of stuff, a lot of good things that happen when you play double lip, but the one thing that is not true, you know, uh, there's always, everybody always sits here and says that you, you, there's no way you can bite when you're playing double lip. That is a fallacy. You're perfectly capable of biting. You get the same callus on your top lip as you do on your bottom lip. And you're perfectly capable of being able to stop that reed from vibrating with your, with both lips as you are with one. So one of the things that I've been doing, and I do it a lot with my students is, I've sort of figured out over the last few years that one of the things that almost when I think of the players that I love to listen to, you know, Harold Wright, you know, Bob Marcellus, Iggy Janusa, I've got tapes, cassette tapes of him from lessons. These guys made a sound that was big, resonant, and, you know, it was like bright and dark at the same time. Uh, and I, I love that kind of sound. And, one of the things that they were all doing was putting a lot of mouthpiece in their mouth. And if I had to say anything, that's probably much more important than whether your top lip is on the thing or not. Mm-hmm. And so what, so what I do is I actually measure the facing of all my students' mouthpieces and uh, find out what that first number is on the thing. And I actually cut a sliver of electrical tape and put it on the reed. And I tell them, Try to get that piece of tape just inside your mouth. And inevitably, when they do it, they sound really good. Well, it's so important not to pinch the reed shut. Right. And I'm to the point now where we were talking about this. uh, Every Wednesday, I go see a clarinetist uh, buddy of mine, a guy named uh, Dr. Cecil Gold. He might be familiar with some of the old timers. He was instrumental in... uh, the clarinet work back in the early eighties and, uh, just a marvelous clarinetist. And, uh, we were talking about this the other day and, you know, we were, we were watching, he brought back the, he was just in, uh, Scandinavia. He saw, he went and saw Martin Frost live and, uh, he was sitting there saying, he says, you know what? You watch that guy play. He is jamming that clarinet in his mouth. Like, like there's no tomorrow. It's like he's, you know, he's almost touching the ligature screws with his face when he plays. And when I started looking at old, old pictures of Harold Wright playing and, and, you know, Marcellus playing and Jadusa when he was playing, they all, they all took a lot of mouthpiece in their mouth. And for some reason that's not become, you know, an issue. You can deaden the sound nice. And there's sort of this 
dead kind of clarinet sound, which is sort of people think is dark, but it's not. Yeah. So would you say then that um, playing the standard way with teeth on top, that does deaden the vibration and resonance a little bit? Well, what I'm finding is when I have what I consider uh, uh, the spot where after that place where I get the measurement, the place where the reed and the mouthpiece are touching, I've decided that I'm going to call that the plateau from now on. It's sort of it seems like a good word for it. Like after the curve on that plateau, when you're on that when you have your lip on that plateau, to me, it doesn't really matter what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, with your with your top lip or even your bottom lip for that matter, it's just gonna sound good. It's just it's a little bit like taking your hands off the handlebars the first time when you're riding a bike. It just, you know, it takes you a little while to you know, it's on one hand you might feel like you have less less control with your mouth, but you have way more control with your air. So with that then, what about someone who might want to consider switching? Like I I've heard so much about it. I, I've tried it before, but it obviously doesn't feel comfortable. Do you kind of have to switch cold turkey or can you go back and forth for a while or? Hmm. That's, that's something I have absolutely no experience in uh, because I'd never, I've never not played it that way. I mean, I can play clarinet single lip. A lot of times E flat clarinet, I'll play single lip just cause you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. there are times, there are times you just got to bite that sucker so sharp that <laughs> <laughs> you know, you can't do that with, with, you know, if you do it with your lips, it's going to, it's going to be crazy. But, uh, yeah. Okay. You know, I, I think though, it's what, what's, what's amazing. And, and this is one of the things that I, I got from hanging out with, with Cecil was it, it really doesn't take when you, ha- when you're playing the clarinet, like where your bottom lip is right inside you know, between halfway between the tip and where it touches the mouthpiece, it doesn't take but a gram or two of pressure to just really deaden the sound. Mm-hmm. So it's not like you're really biting a lot, but the closer you are to the tip of the mouthpiece, the more of an effect a little bit of biting has. I, I would I would recommend just you know before I would switch to. To, to try to play double lip, I would sit there. You can even do it looking sideways on, on the mouthpiece where you put a pencil line where that read the mouthpiece touch, take a piece of electrical tape, cut it about a, you know, an eighth or a sixteenth thick, put it right on that line and just feel how much, blow a note and then feel where that piece of tape is. Yeah, most, anybody I've ever had done that, ever had do that, that piece of tape is so outside of their mouth that they're really on the part where they could really affect it by biting. Hmm. It's like, it's funny. Now I can sit down there and put that amount of, of mouthpiece in my mouth and I can, I can bite with all the energy I can muster and you almost don't even hear it. So what are your thoughts on reed strength and how that affects all this? Well, I find that the more mouthpiece in your mouth, the softer the reed seems you can get away with, but also the harder reed you can get away with. Anytime, you know, like when you look at the, uh, the D'Addario charts where they have a particular mouthpiece and a, and a, and a range, strength range of reeds, uh, and the same thing with Van Doren when they tell you that on this mouthpiece you want to use this range of reeds, I've often found that for me, I mean, I'm lucky to be able to play the soft end of that range. Mm-hmm. I've always tended to play reeds that were a smidge softer than than 
what anybody seemed to recommend with the thing. Now that I'm putting way more mouthpiece in my mouth, I find that not only can I use a reed that's softer than I wanted to, if I, st if I put on one that's even harder than I used to, I can still play it. And it's just a matter of just putting a little bit more air into the horn. It doesn't really involve you know, changing my embouchure or anything like that. So total playability is improved with uh, oh, yeah. just testing the mouthpiece. So I wanted to ask about um, the synth instruments that you have. You have a few pictures featured on your website with those. Um, what are they called? Can you talk about those a little bit? I play two, uh, two different uh, wind synthesizers. One of them is the Akai 4000S, which is a... Uh, a self-contained, uh, what I like about that, it's a self-contained synthesizer. I don't need to go into anything else. It has a hundred cool sounds in it. And I actually use that a lot on Klezmer concerts. I'll do a couple of tunes where I have these really cool synthesizer sounds uh, that I like to use on Klezmer tunes. And the other one I play is a Yamaha WX-5. And I have a whole box of different synthesizer sounds that I take with me on gigs for that. And I pretty much use that whenever Bob and I are playing any kind of pop rock bar gigs or anything like that. So the first instrument has the sounds built in and the second right. one's more of like a MIDI controller then? Yeah. Oh, There's okay. no sounds in it unless you, unless you're hooked into a synthesizer. So what's that like playing then? Is there still a reed? Well, the, the Yamaha has a thing that's, it's like a reed. Uh, and basically what it does is pitch bend. Mm. And that's one of the things I like about that. So when I'm emulating a saxophone, I can I can get the pitch bend in my mouth. The uh, the the Akai, it's it's vibrato is sort of like a uh, it's sort of like you bend this straw the the, the mouthpiece thing, and it kind of gives you a sine wavy kind of vibrato. And uh, that sounds really cool on certain sounds, but not on when I'm emulating different instruments. So. So it also measures like air pressure then? Oh yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's, and it was, it's really interesting because I found that, uh, when I retired from the army, I, I, I had this, this weird thought and it was sort of like, I spent 20 years as a clarinetist and I did a lot of, I was always doing a lot of solos with the band and stuff like that. And for some reason I got this thought that, you know what? I've been doing that for 20 years. I've lost my ability to actually go out and function as like your basic normal musician. Mm -hmm. You know, and be able to go someplace, sit in a bar, and entertain people. So my guitarist was doing a gig at this bar. And what I did is I would go to this gig and I would take my flute and my soprano sax and I would just play those two instruments the entire I would never take a clarinet because, to my mind, that was cheating. Uh, and we weren't really doing things that I thought were really clarinetty kinds of tunes at those things. And one day I decided I had one of these synthesizers on my desk since about 1987. And it was a, it was the Yamaha WX seven. And it had a, it had a synthesizer unit built, you know, that, that it would attach to. And it's no matter what I set it for, it sounded like skating rink music. <laughs> you know, it's nothing. Set it for oboe. It sounded like skating rink music. Set it for bassoon. It sounded like lower octave skating rink music. And, Part of me was sort of like going with the idea that, wow, this would be really cool if you could actually take something I know how to do already and use it like it's, you would think it would be used. So my thought was then, 
you know what? There's guys that are using these things in Hollywood all the time. So I managed to find the guy who basically invented the Akai. Uh, he was a guy named Niall Steiner. You know, he was out in Hollywood. He was playing on like, you could hear him playing on Apocalypse Now and a whole bunch of, you know, probably about 50 or 60 film scores. And he told me exactly what unit I needed to get, exactly where I needed to change the, the chip inside of it and just exactly how to approach practicing the whole thing. And uh, I really got into it. So is this the same Akai that produces interfaces and DJ equipment? Yep. Wow. I wish those were more widely available. Perhaps they are. I guess I, I haven't seen them locally, but maybe in the States? No, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. I don't know. There's like one music store in the area that sells all kinds of stuff, and they might have an Akai in it if you're lucky. That's it. So what's the fingerings like? I mean, you, you just mentioned you played saxophone as well, and you still do. That's something we kind of neglected. Um, but on the Akai, can you switch it between clarinet and saxophone fingerings? Clarinet fingerings don't really work on those kinds of things because uh, if you can, if you, you're probably old enough to remember watching Star Trek when Spock would play like three like three level chess. Yeah. Well, that's kind of what the, the, any of these synthesizers are kind of like. If you can basically imagine like your basic C scale or an F scale on the clarinet, you know, basically you you have seven octaves of that same fingering. Oh wow! Okay. So seven octaves. Yeah. So if you, if you were changing on an octave like you do on a clarinet, it w- it would be non-functional on a saxophone. Basically, you could sit there and play. I I can play a seven octave scale basically just go up to a certain spot and then hit the next note and go up a fingering, you know, you on the Akai has like seven rollers and the, and the, uh, the Yamaha has a bunch of different buttons and, you know, so you can sort of program it how you want, but then it ends up just kind of looping that octave again and again. Yeah. It's a, it's a way to fingerings work. So you're not really, you know, you know, switching fingerings. You're basically, it's basically like a pretty much like a recorder with multiple octaves on it. But it sounds like it's marketed towards more sax players. Clarinet players might have to adjust their their playing. I guess anyone would have to sort of relearn. It sounds like a new experience. I tell you, it's one of those things that when I started getting into it, I was astonished at what it did for my clarinet technique. Hmm. Because uh, you really got to be careful about glitching, on, on especially the Akai. Uh, it's very easy to get double fingery things and, and it takes some practice. Uh, and, but, but when you find that you're not dealing with a mechanism, cause that's almost like just touch pads. Mm-hmm. So you can keep your fingers really close and you're trying not to move very much. It, w- it was really kind of interesting because I played saxophone a lot while I was in the army. And when I got out, uh, and I started getting really into the synthesizer. I got to the point with the synthesizer that I wouldn't even take a flute and a sax anymore. I just take a synthesizer to the gig and, and play the whole night on that. Uh, you know, and we would sit down there and, and, and do tunes and uh, I'm using saxophone fingering. So about a year ago, I decided to pick up the saxophone again. It was like, <laughs> it was like, it was so easy because I've been basically sitting on a simulator for 10 years. So there's no key press. It's just like you, you set your fingers against it. Yeah. Oh, that's they're... the Akai. The Yamaha has got these little keys that you touch, but they don't move very far. And hmm. So 
my mind is racing about these now. I've never really considered them before. I'm sure other people listening will have the same <laughs> sensation. Um, I don't want to talk about them too much more, but what's the pricing like on these things? Are they affordable? If I was going to recommend anybody who wanted to start it, uh, you can get like an Akai 4000S. So there's a new one out, and I'm not super keen on it because it it's it's a little bit more complicated than this one. Uh, and I can still plug the Akai in and use all the sounds that I have on my others, other unit, but you can, you can sit down with a, with a set of earphones, plug it in and you can sit down and practice all night long. <laughs> so you only need a pair of earphones yep, to listen to that? It. Of course, mm-hmm. if you want to play live, you need an amp or a PA to plug yeah. in, but mm-hmm. does it have any onboard effects or? Yeah, there's some, there's some reverb and some stuff that you can set for different sounds in it. Uh. I pretty much use it. Uh, I pretty much use it right out of the box the way that that thing comes when I use it, uh, without the sound, without my sound units attached to it. But it has a MIDI cable out, or it has just the sound like a guitar cable that gives you the built-in sounds. Or I have it, my rig. I can actually run both of them at the same time. I can layer the sound of the synth with the sounds that I have on my boards. So, Tom, is there anything else you'd like to share with us today? I'm just mindful of the fact that we've been talking for almost an hour here. Um, what's your daily practice routine like? Well, long about the time I turned 33, I think it was, I took over as principal clarinet in the Army Field Band. I had been first clarinet and one of the main soloists for years. But when you take over as principal clarinet, all of a sudden there's a lot of extra stuff that's entailed in it. And one of the things when you're a solo clarinet in the army and our schedule at work was like, you had to be there at eight 30 downbeat was at nine o'clock. And if you're principal clarinet in a military band by nine 15, you can be in a world of hurt. If you didn't look at what's on the schedule or the arranger just brought in a new chart that has some hellaciously hard clarinet solo in it that, you know, <laughs> you have to play when the stick comes down. So, Long about that time, what I did is I was looking around and, uh, on the internet, and I found uh, Bob Spring had a warm-up that he was using. So one of the things I do is like, okay, Bob Spring's a really respected clarinetist. He sounds brilliant when he plays. If this guy says this is what he does, I'm going to take his word for it. I printed it out, and I basically started coming into work at uh, – seven o'clock and I would run this warm up that would take me, you know, 40 minutes. And then I was ready to go upstairs and deal with whatever personnel things that I had to do. And what I found is over all those years of doing that, that really kind of honed in all my scale technique and chords. I mean, it's, oh, it's, you know, close a scales, scales in thirds, some chord studies and a staccato thing. And I still do that every day. Wow. A, the first thing I do every morning is I, I'll do 40 minutes of the, I call it, it's in a book. I have it called the daily grind. I got a cup of coffee on the front of it, you know, uh, <laughs> and I do it every day. And it's, it, it's not that it's mindless, but what I like is I don't like having to figure out what I'm doing for my first 40 minutes. Well, I think this is very telling for, for any students or people who are considering taking clarinet who might be listening. Um, even someone who's a top level player like yourself with so many years of experience, you're still doing the daily grind. <laughs> yeah, There's no and, break from that. No. And I tell you, it's as you get older and 
you start, you know, you start feeling differences in your playing and your hands. Just like, you know, all of a sudden it's, is you start feeling there's some things that you've been, you were trying to do your whole life that all of a sudden are easier. Then you find that there are certain things you were doing that seem like they get harder and having something where you're doing the same thing every day, mm -hmm. uh, really gives you, uh, it gives you a focus. Uh, I've modified it over a few years. Like I might take one exercise out and replace it with something that's a little bit different, but it still sort of holds the same, you know, it's basically doing the same thing. It just gives it a little bit of a different way. And, uh, it's gotten to the point now where with my students, when I can get them to a point where they're going to get to the point where they can, you know, comfortably go through the, like that close a scale page and they just know the things. And it's like, you know, I mean, this warm up is that close a scale page, you know, your first time you're going through all this stuff, you're going it at, at a 60th, you know, quarter note equals 60. The second time you go through it, it's quarter note equals 120. And it's like, I can't think of the, I can't think of how, you know, I don't think I've ever gone more than a day without doing it. I, like, I really like that name, The Daily Grind. There's, there's got to be a, we got to make a book like that or something. Yeah, um, and it's, 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 it, and there's nothing really special. It's like stuff that we've all played before. But, you know, there's just something about doing some one thing every day. Now, after that, I'll either record something or if I'm learning a new piece, I'll I'll practice a new piece. But even if I don't only do the daily grind, I can kind of like walk away from it feeling like I, I did my obligation for the day. You know, I practiced, you know, I baked the cake. Maybe I didn't put the icing on it yet, but you know, well, this is also telling cause I was thinking again about last week and, uh, it's just such an interesting insight into the, how, how this works for top level players. Um, again, Norsworthy was saying that Cal Opperman used to have a book. Well, he does have a book and he referred to it as the Bible, the daily studies for clarinet. Mm -hmm. And Norsworthy even said that he has a package similar to the one you're describing. Um, I think he called it the smiley packet or something like that. <laughs> and it's just a daily workbook that he does and his students do. And I think that that's very, very telling. Like when your teacher says, practice your, your scales and your pieces will get better, they really do mean it. And that applies for for life. It, it's, it must also be with your physical training from being in the military, you must find some relationship between a good practice routine and, and physical fitness. Is that something that happens? Well, it, it, it's, 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 it's interesting because, uh, I recently about a year ago, that's been exactly a year now. I, I, my daughter got me involved in going to a CrossFit gym. And, uh, so I've been doing that four days a week and that's usually some pretty crazy physical stuff. And uh, what's really funny is, is I, I've never been very good at doing pull-ups and, you know, stuff where they're using the bar. And I can tell when I do some of that stuff, I'll actually have to sit there and throw in another page of the daily grind just to get my fingers to, like, feel like they bend right the right <laughs> way. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's like I, I, I've recently started listening to uh, the Bob Marcellus lectures out of Northwestern. And I mean, I, what's, what's amazing is, is there's so many more resources out there that are available now because of the internet that were out there when I was growing up learning to play the clarinet, how anybody could not listen to those things is beyond me because he basically tells you everything you're ever going to hear in a lesson with any teacher ever. <laughs> and who is that you know? again? Sorry. 
the uh, Robert Marcellus's lectures out of Northwestern. So anyone listening, you should search that. Was it oh. on YouTube or? Oh, it's actually on a site they have there where he's had people playing excerpts and Rose studies and, you Speaking know. of the Rose studies, didn't you say you played the entire book one the other day with, with one mistake until you no, thought about... A- yeah, I was doing really good until I until I realized I was on the last one and I had really missed but one one note and then I kind of missed like four <laughs> of them in a row. Got to get back on the grind. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tom, it's been great talking with you. Um, we talked about your SoundCloud page. Is there anywhere else people can find you online? Do you have a Facebook page or a Twitter handle? I have a Facebook page. Uh, I'm I'm going to get a Twitter handle one of these days. Uh, I do have some stuff up on YouTube under Klezmer Tom. So the same address as your... Yeah, your yeah. It's... What I'll probably do for those who are interested is on the page on the website uh, where I post this podcast, I'll just put a couple of links to the, the references for for Tom's websites. Um, for the giveaway this week, you've already been so generous with supplying all listeners of the Clarinet podcast with your playing at the beginning and end of the the recordings as you've no doubt heard um but you say you're also going to provide someone with a download to the newest klezmer resource that you've put together is that so yep that's it's called clarinet basic training great so what we'll do is just like every other giveaway it'll be through the website just check clarinet.com for details and uh, one lucky listener will get to download the preliminary version of tom's new work great i hope they enjoy it (laughs) Well, it was really great talking with you today, Tom. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Great. It was great to be here. To be eligible to win product mentioned on the clarinet.com podcast, you can follow us on five forms of social media. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, and YouTube. The winners will be pulled from these five sources. If you find that you're enjoying the podcast, you can support it in five ways. You can follow and interact on social media sites, including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. You can follow the podcast itself and post positive reviews on the podcast medium of your choice, including SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. You can also watch it on YouTube. You can discuss and share content on your own blog or social media site with your friends, colleagues, students, and family. You can complete our listener survey at clarineat.com podcast. Or you can support the podcast directly by making a donation or purchasing your neat and new clarinet products from the clarinet.com online store at clarinet.com slash store. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.